it's good to uh, be here. I'm glad to have the, glad to, have the opportunity uh, to preach here. Uh, it's been a while. I think it was maybe four or so years ago um, that I did preach here before. So I think most everyone here knows me, um, but I wanted to give a quick introduction uh, of myself for those who don't know much about my background or my testimony. Going back into my time in college, uh, that was a time when I had a um, very serious questioning of my faith, uh, and this time ended up humbling me as I looked uh, for a solid ground to base my life on. Through that, God led me to understand that I needed to accept him in faith, uh, and I began to read through the Bible at that time, and I began to grow a lot uh, spiritually. Wanting to continue to grow, I went to seminary after college. Uh, and during and after seminary, I worked as an intern uh, at a few different churches. This was very challenging work for me. Uh, perhaps it wasn't something that I was uh, completely natural at. And I had a few discussions uh, with mentors, and they uh, encouraged me to pursue another calling. This led me to Holland, uh, to where I work now, which is a uh, small business that makes wood office furniture. That also led me uh, here to Harbor Church, and I've been very much uh, blessed by this church, and, and me and my family continue to be uh, blessed by being members here. Often during that time, my mindset has been uh, like that of Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. We're going to be turning um, for our message tonight to the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Um, our basic interest is going to be uh, to look at the ministry of Jesus, but before we get to the ministry of Jesus, um, we read these first uh, eight verses uh, that open up the Gospel of Mark. Before we uh, begin reading, um, I'd also like to just say a quick word of prayer um, over the reading and uh, the preaching. Our Father in heaven, we ask uh, for your help as we open your word here tonight. We pray that you will drive home the points from your word that you would help have us to know and help us as we desire to continue to seek you and to learn the things that we don't yet understand. Build us up in your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the first chapter of Mark, starting at uh, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The theme for our message will be preparing for uh, the gospel. As we read through the Bible, one of the main things that we are looking to do is to get to know Jesus. To quote Paul from Philippians 3, verse 8, 
Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And in verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. As we read the Bible and as we hear the word preached, we are looking to know Jesus, to understand him, and in understanding him, to be more like him. One of the big fads that I remember uh, as I was growing up were the WWJD bracelets. I don't know if anybody else was a, a part of that generation, but basically what these were were bracelets with the letters WWJD on them. And what they, were, what they stood for was, what would Jesus do? And the basic purpose of those bracelets was to, ask, or to make the person who was wearing them ask themselves the question of what Jesus would do in whatever situation that person might be in. Those bracelets fell out of popularity after a while, um, and it might be because that type of a question is a hard question to answer. It also might be because that type of a question can be uh, an oversimplification of what Christians should do. Often the Bible talks about a change of heart uh, that is needed in a person's life. And if we simply focus on the outward actions of Jesus, that doesn't address the issue of the heart. But sometimes as I face challenges in life or when I get into situations where I'm not sure how to act or when I start out the day trying to live with integrity but somehow get sidetracked along the way, I wonder to myself if it's possible to always live well. And I think to myself, yes, it can be done. Jesus has done it and Jesus calls us to follow him. When I remember that, my desire is like that of Paul, that I want to know Jesus, to understand Jesus and to be more like him. If we look at the New Testament as a whole, we can, see, we can see that it consists mainly of two things, the Gospels and the Epistles. The Gospels tell us the events of Jesus' life, and the Epistles help to explain the significance and the implications of these events. The Gospels tell us what took place when Jesus was physically here on earth, and the Epistles tell us the spiritual significance of those things that took place. Both of these are important, and both of these things inform each other. The better we know the events of Jesus' ministry, the better we are able to understand their spiritual significance. And the other way around is true as well. The better that we understand the spiritual significance of the events of Jesus' ministry, the better we understand what is taking place as we read the Gospels. And so what an interest of mine has been um, is to follow along in the ministry of Jesus keeping in mind the spiritual significance, but trying to understand Jesus, to understand his sufferings, to know what it means to share in his death, and to rejoice in the power and the purpose of his resurrection. And so that brings us to the Gospel of Mark. Out of the four Gospels, the Gospel of Mark is the most concise. It contains fewer side stories, less um, teaching than do the other Gospels. And instead, it mostly focuses on the actions of Jesus. Mark is usually considered to be the first of the Gospels to have been written. Um, It's estimated to have been written sometime around 60 AD. And traditionally, it's believed to have been written by John Mark, who was um, a fellow um, apostle of um, Paul and Peter. And we can read about him in the book of Acts. It is believed that the contents of the book of Mark has been greatly influenced by the preaching of the apostle Peter and in some sense to have been approved by him. 
As far as its audience, the Gospel of Mark is traditionally believed to have been written for persecuted Christians who were living in Rome, and most of these um, hearers or original audience would have been Gentiles. And perhaps it is because it was the first of the Gospels written, or perhaps it was, is because it was written to persecuted Christians, that Mark's Gospel is the shortest. Mark was looking to focus on what was most essential for Christians to know in order for them to believe in and to follow Christ. Yet even in the Gospel of Mark, before Jesus appears, the reader is made to take a moment to prepare to meet him. There was an example that I came across from a couple different books uh, on the topic of preparation. And it has to do with the first expedition to the South Pole. There were two different um, explorers, the British captain um, named Robert Scott and the Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen. And both of these men prepared separate trips to the South Pole, both around the year 1911. Amundsen was very careful and deliberate in the way that he prepared. He considered the amount of supplies that he would need and the best way uh, to transport them. On the other hand, Scott was not as careful in the way that he prepared. While Amundsen packed his gears on sled dogs, Scott packed most of his supplies on horses. And also at the last minute, Scott added another person to his crew without making an adjustment in the amount of supplies that he took along. Both of these men did make it to the South Pole, but only Amundsen and his team made it back. Scott and his entire crew died on the return journey. So preparation is important when we get ready to undertake anything. Jesus makes a similar point on discipleship in Luke chapter 14, verse 28, when he says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether or not he has enough to complete it. And as we get ready to go to the gospel, as we get ready to meet with Jesus, to follow him and to know him, it is good for us to, to prepare. In looking at these first verse, eight verses of Mark as preparation for the gospel of Jesus, I think it can be helpful for us to think about two different ways to prepare. So one way of preparing would be preparing to hear. And the second would be preparing to follow. By preparing to hear, this means that we know what we need to know in order to understand what it is that we are being told. This means that we have the background knowledge that we need in order to understand the uh, importance of what we are being taught. By preparing to follow, this means that we know what we need to do and what might be required of us as we set out on this journey. Mark will do both these things in this passage. He will tell his readers what they need to know as they encounter Jesus, and he will also give them an idea of what might be required of them. And so with that framework, we will make our way through this passage in five main points, uh, picking up on phrases from the passage to help us understand how it is that we are to prepare for the gospel. First, in verse 1, we have the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are two words that I would like to pick up on from this verse. The first is gospel. Especially for those of us who are Christians, we recognize that this word uh, gospel is a very significant word and that it has multiple layers of meaning. 
When someone asks you what the gospel is, what do you say? There are different ways that that could be answered, I think, but essentially what gospel means uh, is good news. In the context of scripture, uh, in the way that it is used in both the Old and the New Testament, gospel means the good news of salvation. By salvation, we are talking about God restoring his people into right relationship with him. The second word that we will pick up on is beginning. When we think about the beginning of the good news of salvation, we can ask ourselves where that began. There might have been, this might have also been a question uh, that Mark considered as he sat down and prepared to write down the account that he gives in this gospel. And from what Mark writes here, we can see that this beginning is both new and old. We can say that it is old because God has been at work in restoring his people and bringing about the way of salvation from the time that humankind sinned against him. To show that this gospel has its roots in the past, Mark turns us back to the prophet Isaiah in verses 2 and 3. If you look up the reference um, in Isaiah of this passage specifically, though, um, you will see that it's not just a um, uh, quote from Isaiah, uh, but it's actually two quotes um, put together. It's a quote from Malachi and also a quote from Isaiah. And this type of a writing um, wasn't necessarily or wasn't uncommon at that time. Often two prophecies that both refer to the same thing would be put together and then the whole quote would be uh, attributed to the um, more well-known of the two prophets. So let's take a moment to look at these verses in order. Malachi chapter 3 says, starting at verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If we consider these passages uh, in the context of their original prophecies and also in the context that Mark uses them here, we see that they're really saying the same thing. For both of those hearers, they are calling God's people to prepare for God's appearance. In Malachi, it is the Lord whom you will seek will suddenly come into his temple. And in Isaiah, it is prepare the way of the Lord because the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. The gospel has its beginning in the past. It is something that God has called his people to prepare for for hundreds of thousands of years. Yet at the same time, what we are reading here is also something new. And that's why when Mark starts out his gospel, he writes the beginning. He uses it in a somewhat similar way that we see that the book of Genesis starts with in the beginning. What we are reading here is of something new that God is doing. And this new thing was prophesied as well. If we continue in the prophecies of Isaiah, we read in chapter 43, uh, verse 16 and then 19. Thus says the Lord, behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God himself says that what, he, what will happen will be something that is new. And Jesus speaks of his own ministry in this way as well. 
When Jesus is asked about the difference between uh, his ministry and the ministry of John the Baptist, he says in chapter 2, verse 21 of Mark, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts old new wine into old wineskins. If he does this, the wine will burst the skins. The wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. We can get another sense of the newness of Jesus' ministry or the newness of the gospel um, from what we read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. The law and the prophets find their fulfillment in Christ. If we were to try to look at the gospel of Jesus Christ as nothing more of a continuation of the things that have gone before, what we would be doing is trying to something similar to trying to put a new piece of cloth into an old garment or new wine into old wineskins. That cloth would burst or would tear and the wineskin would burst. Instead, it is best to see this ministry of the gospel of Christ as the fulfillment of the things that have gone before and the start of a promised new creation. It is the fulfillment of the way that God has brought salvation to his people. So to bring this back to our theme, how do we prepare for the gospel of Jesus Christ? We prepare by recognizing that it has its roots in the past, but that in it, God is doing something new, which is the fulfillment of what has gone before. Our second point, on to verse 4. Uh, we have baptizing in the wilderness. I think it was the preacher Alistair Begg who said in a sermon of his that if there was one common image running through the Gospel of Mark, it would be the image of the wilderness. We hear of it tri- twice in our passage tonight in verses 3 and 4. Uh, we will see it twice later uh, in verses 12 and 13, also in this chapter. And throughout the book of Mark, it will be the place where Jesus will go and where Jesus will teach and where Jesus will perform miracles. Also in verse 6 of our passage, we see wilderness um, uh, being embodied in the, both the peril, apparel and also the um, diet of John the Baptist. His very image or his ministry is the embodiment of the wilderness. And throughout the Bible, the wilderness is a place where God meets with his people. It is a place where God uh, prepares his people. The wilderness is the place where God met with Hagar as she fled from Sarah. It is a place where God met with Moses at the burning bush. It is where God met with uh, his people after he delivered them from Egypt. It is where God met with Elijah as he fled from Jezebel. And it is where Jesus will go to be close to God the Father. The Greek word for wilderness is Aramea, which is where we get the word Aramite from. That's not really a common word, I guess, except for if you read a lot of uh, Christian history. Uh, but it's also the basis for the word hermit. What the wilderness uh, is, essentially, is a solitude. It's an uninhabited region or a waste In other places in the book of Mark, depending on the version of the Bible, this word is translated as a desolate place. It is a place where there is a lack of abundance. 
Many years ago, uh, I had the opportunity to go on a trip to Israel. It was partly a service trip, partly uh, an educational trip, and also partly a chance to go and see the holy sites. I got to be there for about five weeks, which was just long enough to begin uh, to get used to the environment. And when I got back to Michigan and I rode back from the airport, I remember looking up at all the trees and being overwhelmed by them and also being overwhelmed by how green uh, everything was. I think others who have spent a lot of time in a different environment have probably experienced something similar. I thought about it, and in some ways it made sense that God had historically worked uh, in that place. There is not a lot around there to look at, and you can see far into the distance. A person is probably probably the most interesting thing that is there. That's one of the things that is true about the wilderness. There is not a lot there to reflect on, but only ourselves. This is the desolate place where God met with John the Baptist and where God met with the people who went out to see John the Baptist. For a person to have heart dealings with God, that person must have been brought to a place where they have been able to reflect on themselves. They must have understood their frailty. They must have understood the relatively small amount of space that they take up when compared with the vastness of their surroundings. And for those who have become Christians, they must have been brought to a place where they have been separated from the distractions around them and they've been able to recognize their sin. They don't focus on blaming their environment. They don't focus on blaming their parents or a group that they might have fell into. But they recognize that, like in the wilderness, it is only them there. And the important thing for them to do is to recognize their own sin and to address the sin in their lives. That is the wilderness where the people are going to as they prepare for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Third, uh, still in verse 4, we have a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There are a lot of good uh, resources that are available on the baptism of John. It is a topic that a lot has been written about, more than uh, what is worth getting into here. But there are some things that if we understand, um, they help bring more insight uh, into this passage. In Israel, there were baptisms that took place uh, even before the time when we read about here that John came baptizing. What these baptisms were referred to as were proselyte baptisms. And they were a way for those who were not Jews by birth to be brought into the Jewish faith. And so here it is worth noting that it is not mostly those who are Gentiles who are being baptized, but that it is the Jews It is the Jews who are recognizing that though they consider themselves to be the people who have been called by God, they need to regard themselves just like those who are outside the faith. Luke points this out specifically uh, in his gospel. In Luke chapter 3, verse 8, John the Baptist says, Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, raise up children for Abraham. The people who were going out to John to be baptized were saying by their actions that they were not the children of Abraham by birth, but that because of their sin, they needed to be brought back in to the people of God. So this baptism 
I guess the second thing about this baptism of John um, that's worth noting is that it is different than the baptism that Jesus would call his followers to perform um, at the end before he ascended into heaven. And we know this from the account of the baptism of the disciples of John that we can read about uh, in Acts chapter 19. So when these disciples tell Paul that they were just baptized into John's baptism, Paul then baptizes them in the name of the Lord Jesus. But even though this, diff- this baptism of John is different than the baptism that Jesus calls his followers to baptize with, there are, I guess, notable similarities between the two. Both of them signify the forgiveness of sins, which is symbolized by washing. And this is a symbolism that is supported um, by several different passages of Scripture. We can see it in Psalm 51, where David writes, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. We also see it tied uh, directly to the practice of baptism in Acts 22, verse 16, where we hear um, Ananias speaking to Paul, saying, Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. That is what the people of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to John the Baptist for, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And they were doing this in preparation for the coming of the Lord. And so as Mark gives this account, we see that as a part of the preparation for the gospel that is going on here, people are going to God for the forgiveness of sins. Now, some might be thinking, uh, isn't it the purpose of the gospel to forgive sins. Isn't it really the case, is it really the case that uh, these people were looking to God to forgive their sins before they had received the gospel? There's a song that we often sing here that goes, uh, if you tarry till you're better, you may never come at all. And I think that the idea maybe of, of getting better uh, could be a good way of thinking about it. If we hear that these people in this passage are going out to John to be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins, we could, I guess, see that it's a baptism for the forgiveness of our sins, but we could also ask ourselves at that point, are those people really better? And so when any person goes to God for the forgiveness of their sins, are they really better? And I would say that in a certain way, yes, but that to a much greater extent, the process of getting better has only just begun. We will not be better until God has completed the work uh, that he is doing in us. But I think it's worth making the point that as we go to the gospel, and if we want to understand the gospel, and if we want to understand what we read here, it is best to go to it as people who have gone to God asking for forgiveness of our sins. When we look to God for forgiveness, we will be all the more ready to see and to understand the way in which Christ is the way that God has provided for that forgiveness or provided that forgiveness. Uh, Fourth, uh, in verse 5, we have all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him. One of the commentators uh, that I read on this verse wrote that this was uh, clearly hyperbole, meaning that it was a uh, purposeful exaggeration of what took place. And I don't necessarily think uh, that that is true. 
For one, I would think that a passionate speaker dressed in camel's hair who was leading people to repentance would draw quite a bit of attention. But second, I also think that the content of what John was saying would also draw a lot of attention. As a modern example, I think of podcasts, but I think you could also think of many different YouTube channels or things like that. But personally, I've gotten back into listening to some podcasts in this past year or so. Podcasts in general have grown quite popular, and they continue to grow more popular. And there are different types, of course, um, but the ones that I'm thinking about are the type where there will be a host uh, who will interview a guest who has done well in their field or in their line of work. And that can be different types of things, such as marketing or sports or technology or, or really any number of things. And what happens uh, in these podcasts, to put it very broadly, is that the host will question the guest in such a way that Advice is given and personal stories are told about how that person uh, got to be where they are. The guest and the host will figure out small ways that their listeners uh, can learn about how to uh, improve their lives or in a small way, to borrow a phrase, straighten up their lives. And that is often something that will draw people. If there is something that truly appears to be an opportunity for us to straighten out our lives or bring us closer to being the type of people that we want to be, people will be drawn to that. And that's true in religious settings, but also uh, in secular settings. There's something else that is happening in this passage as well, uh, which another commentator points out. And it is that God is working in the hearts of the people. God is moving these people to recognize their sin, and God is causing them to turn back to God. And this type of thing does happen as well. A few examples from history uh, might help to illustrate this. First, from the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, we can read about how God worked in the hearts of the people there after the rebuilding of the temple, and how when they heard the law read to them, they acknowledged and confessed their sin. Second, um, in the time of Jonathan Edwards, often referred to as the Great Awakening, many people were convicted by the preaching of the word, and they recognized and confessed their sin. It is said during that time that it was common to hear people talking about scripture or theology as you went about the town. Or third, uh, more recently, I think the same could be said of the ministry of Billy Graham and the crusades that took a place across the United States as well as around the world. Many people who hadn't been part of the church were moved to confess their sins and to become Christians. Some of those examples are focused a little bit more on the United States, and I'm sure many more great examples could be given from what uh, has taken place in other countries as well. But these are times when God has moved the hearts of people to confess their sin and to seek him. And even if the world sometimes seems to continue to get worse, this is still something that can happen. And so as we prepare for the gospel, we prepare by recognizing that this gospel is given to people who are in need, and we should expect and pray for God to move the hearts of the people who hear it. Fifth, uh, from verses 7 and 8, we have, After me comes one who is mightier than I, and then he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
There is a Welch preacher, um, a Reformed Welch preacher uh, from the 1960s who I enjoy listening to. Uh, His name is Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he's been been mentioned a few times uh, from this pulpit. Um, He had been a doctor before going into ministry, and I think he had a very uh, systematic way of preaching. There's also a large archive of his sermons um, online, and I enjoy listening to the way that he delivers uh, his message. He has a very distinct, distinct way of speaking. He had a series of uh, six sermons on almost the same phrase that we are um, looking at in this fifth point. He preaches from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 33, where John the Baptist refers to the one who is coming as he who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. The basic point of these six sermons is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit um, is also not the same baptism that Jesus calls his follower to at the end of the gospel. He says that this baptism of the Holy Spirit um, is not necessarily even something that happens um, to every Christian. Overall, his arguments are compelling. I'm not sure if I agree uh, with everything that he says, But I bring it up here because I think it is helpful as we consider um, in this fifth point the work of the Holy Spirit and the promise of the Holy Spirit as the final point of exposition on the theme of preparing for the gospel. On the topic of the Holy Spirit, I guess for one, um, all who believe in Christ are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. We read about this in Acts 3 verse 38. At the end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost, Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Likewise, Paul, when he writes to the Galatians, uh, speaking of how they received justification by faith, says in Galatians 3 verse 2, Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by words of the law or by hearing with faith? The implication here being that as they heard the gospel with faith, they received the Holy Spirit. But not only are we given the Holy Spirit as believers, but we can also be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think this might be closer to how Martin Lloyd-Jones was understanding that phrase, um, baptized with the Spirit. And that is, Christ will fill his followers with the Holy Spirit for the purpose of preaching the gospel and for building up his church. And so in this view, the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, is something of an experience that fills a person with great joy and peace and is used for the purpose of building up the church. And that's what we have at Pentecost. We see that in Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven the sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so Peter, as a part of that passage, filled with the Spirit, preaches the gospel and says in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Peter then calls the people there to repent and be baptized, and we read that 3,000 were converted there that day. Not only did the Holy Spirit help in the, the preaching and the building up of church through the ministry of the apostles, but it also helped in the putting together of the Gospels. 
And we can read about that um, in John chapter 14, verse 26, where Jesus speaks of the time when he will leave the disciples. He says then, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance what I have said to you. And in chapter 16, verse 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are are to come. He will glorify me and take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit here is talked about, that John is talking about, is what God will use to build up his church. There's something else that I think is worth noting as we look um, at what John is saying here about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that is that this is also uh, to be taken as a warning. And Matthew and Luke, I think, pick up on this by including the words uh, in their Gospels and fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire is used to purify and to refine. It is used to burn away what is unnecessary so that only what is valuable is left. Now, the Holy Spirit itself um, does not have that function in our lives, but what the Holy Spirit will do is lead us to a place where we will be refined. And so what Jesus requires of his disciples will cause them to be refined. And if we too, as we receive the Holy Spirit, follow Christ, we will find that we will be refined as well. And so we can take this as a warning, as a warning to prepare for what the gospel might require of us. And two examples of this from scripture, uh, the first of Mary from the second chapter of Luke. This is when Jesus was presented uh, in the temple and Simeon, uh, a righteous man, Uh, who had been promised that he would see the Lord's Christ, saw the child Jesus, and filled with the Spirit, he began to prophesy. And he said to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and as a sign that is opposed. And then he says, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thought of many hearts will be revealed. A soul would pierce through Mary's heart. And so for Mary... This gospel would require to see her son unjustly imprisoned, mocked, beaten, and nailed to a cross. It's another example, the apostle Peter. Jesus said to him, um, as we can read in the gospel of John, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said, by the kind of death he was to glorify God. And so when we think about what the sending of the Holy Spirit might require, we can ask ourselves, who did that gospel require more from than Jesus Christ himself? For it was only after Jesus had been crucified that the Spirit was sent. A part of the sending the Spirit meant the crucifixion of Jesus In John 16, verse 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus' mission had been to lay down his life for his people in order that he might provide for them a way to God. 
The cost of sending his spirit for Jesus Christ was his death on the cross. And so that might be true of us as well as we prepare for the gospel, as we prepare to receive his spirit and to be led by that spirit, we should know that this might require a lot from us. So now we have made it through an exposition of uh, this passage. We have seen that as we prepare for the gospel, we should recognize that it is a new thing that God has done, but that it has its roots in the past. We have seen that as we prepare, we should recognize our sin, that we should look to God for forgiveness. We have also prepared by looking to the promised Holy Spirit, knowing that a lot might be required of us, or perhaps we could say that a great change will be required in us. Let us go circle back uh, to reemphasize two of these points for application. The first um, is something that I found encouraging as I thought over this passage during the last um, few weeks. And this is the understanding that the wilderness is a place where God will meet with his people. In one way or another, we might find ourselves in a wilderness. Now, I was encouraged as I read this to see that a wilderness isn't necessarily a place of God's disfavor, but that it can be a place where God will meet with his people. It can be a place where God will have heart dealings with his people. And so that is our first application. If God has led us to a wilderness or a desolate place, we should go to see if it isn't a place where God is calling us to examine ourselves, to go to the gospel, and to go to Christ. Second, and what might be the most important thing uh, for us to take away from this passage, is to look to the Holy Spirit as we prepare to go to the gospel. Even as we prepare to hear the gospel preached each Sunday, or as we prepare to hear it taught in Bible studies, or even reading in our own personal devotions, we should look to the Spirit to aid us and to fill us. This is the thing that John points out as separating the work of Christ from his own work. It is what Christ promises that he will give his people as the way to know him. It will be the way that the Spirit will, in the same Spirit that... um, that led the authors of the scripture to recall the events of Jesus' ministry is the very same spirit that will make those events of Jesus' ministry um, true to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the gospel. We thank you for the offering for offering the sacrifice that this gift required. Help us to prepare to embrace this gospel more fully each day. Prepare us to know your son, to share in his sufferings, to share in his death, and to know the power of your resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.